I'm Millie Hill, author of Give Birth Like a Feminist, the book about why birth is a feminist issue. In this podcast, I meet some of the experts featured in the book and explore childbirth through a feminist lens. In this episode, I speak to Holly Dunsworth, a biological anthropologist and professor of anthropology at the University of Rhode Island. Holly's work came to my attention when I was researching Give Birth Like a Feminist and discovered she had challenged a theory called the obstetric dilemma. You might not be familiar with that name, but you will be familiar with the ideas behind it, essentially that childbirth is more difficult for us humans than for any other mammal because we're an intelligent species with large brains, but we've also evolved to walk upright. This obstetric dilemma suggests that there's something different or even wrong about human females. But luckily, Holly Dunsworth has had the foresight to challenge this incredibly male-centered way of looking at women's bodies. So hi, Holly. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks for joining me. It's an absolute thrill to actually talk to you and meet you because it, uh it is yeah. wonderful to meet you too <laughs> it's uh I I was so excited when I was writing Give Birth Like a Feminist to find out about your research and your work um because it just somehow it sort of like absolutely slots into everything that I was trying to explore through the book um this whole idea that women's bodies uh are somehow inadequate um and that they kind of need to be rescued from their inadequacy by <laughs> by others um and 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 then i came across your research and and it kind of blew my mind because the obstetric dilemma although i'm not sure i actually knew the name of it at the time but the, this idea that we are um you know women aren't quite built right for childbirth and that our pelvises, you know, it's because we walk upright that our pelvises, you know, have to, and there's this compromise between walking upright and the size of the baby's head and human intelligence and all of that. I had that plugged into the back of my mind for such a long time, like all my life, I think, that that's why birth is so difficult. And I then I found your work. So talk yep. to me about. Yeah, about. so <laughs> I think a lot of people are in your shoes. I think a a lot of people uh, have never necessarily heard the, the term that um, scientists use for this idea, the obstetric dilemma or the obstetrical dilemma. It's not, it's not something they've ever heard of, but the ideas or even parts of that story are everywhere in pop culture. And especially um, among people who are in tune to thinking about humans as a part of nature and um, having a deep history or actually thinking about human evolution. So, and, and so it's touching even people who don't realize that they're thinking evolutionarily might have pieces of the story that they take for granted as fact, just because it's just everywhere. And the story itself has drawn from what's already everywhere and woven it, it, those pieces into, in, into this scientific fact that is, is I think, no longer a fact and, and should be treated very skeptically to be kind. <laughs> so talk yeah. to us about what that scientific okay. fact in inverted commas is for okay. people who don't know anything about this. So whether people know it or not, um, yeah, there this this all of these ideas are interrelated, and that's what strengthens them into this story that's taken for granted, the obstetrical dilemma. So there are absolute facts. We 
evolved to walk upright. And as part of that evolutionary history, our pelvises metamorphosed um, and have di interesting differences compared to other primates. We have a lot of similarities in our bones, including our pelvis with other primates, but we have a lot of interesting differences that have to do with walking upright in the way that our um, butt and hip muscles have moved around to help us balance while we walk on only one leg actually at a time while we're, while we're two-footed apes. And then, um, so we've got these 20 pelvis and then we've, or pelvises, and we've got huge brains and our babies have huge brains. Our babies have brains the size of adult chimpanzee brains. So we're giving birth to, you know, to, to a baby, to huge baby brains. And then we're growing them even bigger, right? Until we get our big brains as adults. So, or before we're adults. So we have these wonderful stories that we know are fact because we've got um, so much evidence to back it up, especially from the fossil record of human evolution, where we see the changes over time in our skeleton as we walk, become habitually bipedal and the changes over time in our brain size as, you know, as evidence in the fossil record. And, and it, those are the two things that come together. And um, when people think about childbirth and why is it so difficult? Well, of course, they're thinking about the, the pelvis doesn't seem big enough to fit this big brained baby. So why is that? And and the story has always been um, that the pelvis can't get any bigger or else that would compromise bipedalism. We couldn't walk if the pelvis were any bigger. Our hips, our, our thigh bones would be too far apart for us to walk well enough to survive and reproduce and not go extinct. Um, and so this assumption that we've needed narrow hips and that we've been like evolution has forced us to have this difficult childbirth so that we can continue to walk um, has just, is, is still out there. It's still the prevailing assumption. And yeah. um, we don't, the, just to, 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 to just say it out without providing all of the evidence, but it, there is no evidence, right? So there's a big lack of evidence. And then there's evidence against that assumption that um, we must have narrow hips in order to be bipeds. Um, and the corollary assumption, which is that because women have wider hips than men on average, they, and because they are Sorry to put it this way, but it's out of his, this is a 70 year old idea or more um, because women are worse at sports than men, then women are worse bipeds than men already. So women are already, this is the thinking, the, the assumptions built into this. Women are already worse bipeds. We can't allow, like evolution can't allow them to get any worse. So they their pelvis are stuck in this compromised position, this this instead of a multitasking view right like women are good bipeds and they're good birthers instead um they are bad at bipedalism and but yet bipedalism is keeping them from being good at giving birth too i um, remember reading about this when i was when i first came across your work and yeah. actually reading that you know like you said it's not just childbirth that the, the the dilemma kind of applies to it's like almost as if being female is some kind of disability in itself. Yes. Like it compromises yes. us in every area. And yes. this, we're not as good at anything as, as men because yeah. of our pelvises. 
Right. And so <laughs> I love that you went right there. So the people who came up with this idea at first, they could, I don't think they could help it, right? They're men. And they were people who were intent, intensively studying the fossil record of human evolution and people who then are obsessed with bones. And so one of the, one of the few conspicuous differences between on average, right? And the pattern differences, I don't mean distinct, like discrete differences. I mean, pattern differences between um, male and female human skeletons is in the pelvis. So they're, they're, you know, it, it, captured their imagination. And at the time, and it's still true, unfortunately, for a lot of people, the male skeleton was, which doesn't even exist, the, 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 the human skeleton that develops as a male um, was viewed as the ideal human form and the uh, female as like a deviant from that, like a compromise or, or, or worse right, form compared to the held up male ideal. And so you look at the, like the, the men are doing these wonderful, strong, swift, elegant things with their bodies and women are just, you're right, I don't know, doing whatever else with theirs. So this is, <laughs> but, but they manage childbirth, but barely. And, <laughs> and, and so this focus on the bones too, which is really a wild thing to do when you're thinking about childbirth, it's in pregnancy, it's so much more than the bones. It's so much more than that, but this focus on the bones, it's just, um, it's wild how, I think it's because that's something you can feel and you can see a lot of the other, um, it's, you know, so much else, a lot of the other aspects of, um, of childbirth and pregnancy are, are harder to see, right? Harder yeah. to quantify, harder to really understand and, and it's complex. And so, it's been easy for people to just grab onto the bones and tell this story about, about the evolution of difficult childbirth. And one thing I do need to add on to it too is, of course, it's been solved. The obstetrical dilemma has been solved because there's 8 billion of us now. And the way the story goes is, you know, it, the problem has been solved by birthing babies early. Yeah. So this is where it all falls apart. This is where you can start to be skeptical about the the assumptions about the women's pelvis. When you see that the solution that must exist for there to be a dilemma, we must have solved it or else we wouldn't be here. The solution actually is bogus. We don't give birth to babies early. There's no evidence of this. We okay. don't. So once you see there's no been no solution, then there couldn't have ever have been a dilemma in the first place. <laughs> so where does that idea come from then that, that we give birth to our babies early? Because that's really widely held as well, isn't it? And this is yes. why they're so really kind of annoying in a way, these babies and dependent on us and helpless. Exactly. So um, who, who was telling these stories from the from the beginning? Who, 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 was, who had the voice? It was mostly men um, it, from the beginning. And and their narrative of human babies is, 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 is you know, um, <laughs> it's not a very nice one. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, they're, they're, right. They're useless. They're parasites. They're, they're born um, as extra uterine fetuses. And there's a lovely way to, to spin that narrative and to say they need extra care. We should treat them extra specially and we should, and that's probably a good strategy. But us, the story underneath that, if it comes from this obstetrical dilemma one, you know, it's made up. But um, 
but yeah, this narrative that we're born early comes from this, I think, it's not just people's men's impression of babies um, and they're controlling the narrative from the beginning in this evolutionary realm, but also, okay, the, the quantitative fact that we are born with relatively less of our adult sized brain compared to chimpanzees. And that the assumption being that we should be born with the same proportion of our adult sized brain as chimpanzees are born with. So okay, we are born with at most 30% of the brain we'll eventually have and uh, size, size wise and volume wise. Mm -hmm. And chimpanzee babies are born with 40, up to 40% of the brain they'll eventually have. Right. So we have absolutely huge brains when are born when we are born, we have adult chimp sized brains when we're born, but we have relatively less brain compared to our, our mothers than they have when they're born. And someone, Stephen Jay Gould, some other people decided that's messed up. We should have as much relative, you know, we should have the same percentage, like as if mother nature knows what 40% is. I don't, <laughs> we should have the same percentage as chimpanzees and so we should we should really have an extended gestation until we're at 40%. It's so strange. I don't get this logic at all. No other primate encephalizes or gets a bigger brain over evolutionary time by doing that in utero. They all do they all do it outside in childhood. Chimpanzees do too. So chimpanzees are born with relatively less brain than monkeys. And no one's saying chimpanzees should have a longer pregnancy. They're born early. They have an obstetrical dilemma. And the reason they're not saying that is they have a they have less of a tight fit than humans. And they're not bipedal and they're not, they're not us. So they don't get a special story. Um, so it just it's not logical, this assumption that we're born early because of our relative brain size. Of course, we're going to grow that huge brain outside of mom, just like other primates do who have big brains. Yeah. Fascinating. So, yeah. so much of it is coming from this kind of androcentric narrative, um, yes. everything being seen through the lens of male perspective. And I'm really fascinated. I was really fascinated what you're saying about the the bones as well, because I think that lingers as well. Like when I talk to pregnant women and their the fear, I think the visual picture that a lot of women get of birth is the sort of the the bones and the the, the head of the baby yes. getting through the the the, pe the pelvic bone. And we even see videos like that, don't we? Yep. But, but when you explain to them about the vagina and about the, you know, yeah. the, the muscles and the tissue and everything, the way that everything kind of like um, stretches yes. and the head of the baby and the way that's actually soft, they're like, oh, yes. no, you know, no one ever tells people this. It's like, oh, that's a different story to the one I've kind of heard and the way I've imagined it. So, oh, and it took me years to actually hear in this context about the, the joints and the pelvis even expanding and opening up the bones themselves separating and creating a lot more space, especially the sacrum, the back door <laughs> flapping open. I, and, and just how much extra room you, you can achieve with that laxity between the pelvic bones um, it helps with relaxin, that new, newly discovered, relative to science, newly discovered hormone, and um, and the positioning of the body and how you can open up. 
especially if you're a little bit limber <laughs> and, <laughs> and you can stretch. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it feels like we're confined to this solid, inner, uh, immobile, you know, hard birth canal. And we're, we're not, we're just not. Yeah. yeah. How fascinating. So um, tell us a bit more about other primates as well. I think that's really interesting. So because we, I've heard that comparison before. So what are other primates, do they have easier births? Do they um, pop so them out I quickly? They, <laughs> they still, we still don't know enough about other primates and, and there are wonderful scientists working on this. Um, and I, I, in general, I think you can assume that we have a dif more difficult time than they do. Um, but but so much of what we know is about birth in captivity, and that's still very little um, compared to birth in the wild. And so, uh, uh, it, we, it when you look at their faces, they're straining. They're probably feeling pain. Uh, it's hard work. It's probably confusing if it's never happened before. Um, uh, and it's it's probably something they hope gets over with soon. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I, I've, I've read enough just recently about primate cognition to actually not feel silly saying things like that. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, it's an event, it's difficult. And some primates have what looks like the same, if you look at the size of their neonatal um, head and the size of their bony birth canal, it looks like they have the same tightness of fit that, that we do, but we have, um, we definitely have more of a bony tube. So it seems like more of a, more of an experience <laughs> for, 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 for birthing mothers and, 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 and babies. But, um, but yeah, I mean, some primates and just like with some people, some people just, you know, it's, it's, it's quick. It yeah. goes quickly. And I, and that's not usually necessarily their first birth. But it's, you know, it's variable. And I think it is safe to say we have the hardest, most difficult time among the primates. But wouldn't you say, Millie, that that's probably because of what we do to yeah. <laughs> what we've oh. done to ourselves, what we've done to birth and what we what what birth culture we're part of? Well, it's so funny how you use the expression about birth and captivity because it set off a light bulb in my head. You know, some people sometimes call hospital birth, birth and captivity, which I think Absolutely. is a bit it's a bit of an unfair kind of um, yeah. term and I know it's going to put people's backs up slightly, but on the other hand, it's kind of fairly accurate, I think, because I agree. You know, uh, I remember writing this article a long time ago about pandas and um, <laughs> there was this great news story in the UK press about this panda that was about to give birth in a zoo and they had created this purpose built, probably million pound or something area for this sort of endangered uh, animal to give birth in. And they'd given so much consideration to all of the pandas' needs. And, it, you know, I wrote this, remember writing this article about it and saying, you know, isn't it great that they're doing this for pandas, but they're not actually doing it for women? <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh. <laughs> uh, it hurts. Yeah. And, and I think that's uh, another point that that made me think about was that that's the problem that we have at the moment, you know, like um, all these inductions that are happening for women and they're using this evidence, which um, some of the evidence they're using is this trial called the ARRIVE trial. And uh, another academic right. has called it like um, comparing frying pan and fire because they're whenever they do any research now they've they they haven't they've only got animals in captivity if you like to research mm -hmm. um, they haven't got 
very many women who are having completely natural hands-off births where mm -hmm. their their bodies are um given the space to proceed you know proceed naturally and so therefore they're comparing this set of women in a hospital to this set of women in a hospital mm -hmm. and you know the frying pan and the fire and you know the frying pan sometimes comes out better than the fire or vice versa but there's no there's no um control of uh, someone you know of a woman giving birth without anything because everyone's afraid of that yeah and i under i understand i understand i i want to i want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt right with, yeah. of having kind human hearts and that you know that being the obstacle we face but it is more than that there's at least over here we've we've just we've turned it in you know we've limited the experience you know we've limited it because of because time is money time in the hospital is money and and because of the you know the risk to litigation and 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 profit i'm sorry to say and i i and then within that there are people who care and people who know how to help and 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 would love to you know help right away and mitigate all risk um instead of maybe i don't know learning how how birth works and 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 learning how to watch yeah. and assist from from that perspective and how to be there in case from that perspective um that that would yeah. be a much better way of um forward but um, and I think there are just so many people working on this. There are just so many wonderful people working on this, doulas and midwives and activists, that I can't help but think that things are going to improve. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I don't know. It seems to be like, uh, you know, a culture and a counterculture always to me. And the, the culture never seems to want to listen to the counterculture, if that makes sense. So, you know. Oh, I know. It's so funny. It's so trendy to be anti-science right now. To be, well, sorry, anti-science is stepping a little too far. To be critical of the scientific authority. It's so trendy. And yet where are the, the like the legit critics of the birth industry? I, I just, <laughs> it's yeah. just so, I, 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 and I know, I know it's out of fear. I mm. think, I think, we're, I, I think we're afraid. At least I was, I was so afraid. They painted me right away as like an elderly mother. I, I was pregnant when I was 36. So I was elderly. And, and, and so that, and, and I knew it was the only kid I was going to have. We decided to have one and it was special. And I thought, and, and I, even though I had done so much research already at that point in my life on the evolution of childbirth, I didn't know much about the medical side and how I would be treated. And I saw myself as like a colleague of these obstetricians and midwives at the hospital, these hospital folks. And, and I was, I got sucked right into the, to the whole complex and it all happened to me and it it is. still a little trauma I'm working through. Yeah. So I, I mean, fear I know my fear and my hopes and my I just it's too much to ask pregnant women and people to deal with this themselves and it's way too much it's it's and 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 so that's that's a that's a big part of the obstacle I think to making improvements how did you come to think about the obstetric dilemma and and what how did the light bulb go on for you and were you the first person to challenge it 
I believe you were. Um, when I, well, to answer that question, when I was challenging it, someone said, didn't so-and-so, and it was, um, a, a colleague of mine had given a talk, like one-off talk at a conference with no paper published afterwards, doubting that humans were born early. And so, um, so doubting a piece of the whole story. And so, yeah, so someone else had, so he and who knows who else had, you know, said, but this, but that. And Wenda Trevathan and Karen Rosenberg, um, some of my colleagues had written a paper where they revisited the idea and they said, it's actually not the baby's head, it's the shoulders. The shoulders are, can be, you know, a problem. You've got to know how to, you've got to know some maneuvers if you're going to help somebody get through a, a shoulder dystocia. And so they thought, well, maybe the obstetrical dilemma is a valid hypothesis, but, um, or a good approach, but we got to really think about the shoulders maybe even more than the big brain. So there were already kind of, you know, there were thoughts about this, but this was fact. This was fact. And the reason I, I thought it was such a good story that I went looking for the evidence just to like roll around in it, like to revel in the, in the evidence. That's what got me to, to it. I didn't think, well, that sounds ridiculous, you know, and go to the go to the literature. No, I actually thought it was such a good story that I went to go look for the evidence and then I couldn't find any. <laughs> and then I was I was radicalized. I really was. And it it changed everything. It changed everything. It changed how I see all of human evolutionary science. In what way? Oh, obviously, so obviously evolution is true and so much evolutionary science is wonderful, but the, the, the stories we tell to weave together the facts are sometimes legit stories and we need stories. What else are we going to do with all these facts? I mean, the point of human evolution is for meaning making. I mean, there's sometimes some applications, like some medical applications of the science, but really the number one product of all this science is for us all to make meaning of where we come from and who we are. And that's, we do that with stories. And sometimes those stories about those facts are good, you know, solid stories. And other times they're complete bullshit. <laughs> and I didn't have this perspective at all. I mean, I was just going along with it thinking I was, you know, part of this up and down scientific endeavor like everyone else. And it, and other people are, were already onto this, perspective right I just hadn't joined them and the obstetrical dilemma is what got me there and it's been awesome ever yeah, since yeah. it's been wonderful yeah and you have put forward a new theory called egg yes okay said about that <laughs> so a, a friend said well you you got to give a nickname to your alternative hypothesis so that people can talk about it and so we made this cute acronym of um the energetics of gestation and fetal growth. And it's really a metabolic idea, but M didn't fit in there. So we stuck to EGG. Um, uh, but the met metabolism and energetics of the, of the mother's body, of the pregnant body, and what the placenta can do, like a consideration of all of the physiology of pregnancy plus gestating a fetus, that should be the focus of how we think about the limits of gestation and pregnancy like what's not the bony pelvis like right. 
instead of thinking about the bony pelvis as the end of, as what ends pregnancy when it does, like why babies are born when they're born, this bony pelvis, take the pelvis out of it and look at humans just like we already have been looking across placental mammals. It's the mostly, it's the metabolic and energetic, um, the traits that add up to, um, that comp comprise mother's metabolism and our energetic throughput and body size is a pretty good way to estimate a lot of that or compare that across species so um like big mammals have longer gestations and pregnancies generally speaking it's not really you know metabolism and energetic use these are traits that can really vary wildly even between um closely related species but humans happen to have an elevated um energetic throughput compared to other apes. So it makes sense to me that we could have an even longer, slightly longer pregnancy than you'd expect for our body size compared to the other apes. Right. And so, um, yeah, it's just considering us like mammals, considering us to be just another mammal. And instead of making our bony birth canal, just some special weird way to end our pregnancy and no one else's seems to be a better way to think about the this this whole this 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 whole story um i love thinking about humans as being special but i actually don't i don't i don't think it it's it, it's useful here to think about us as having this special end to our pregnancy that's cut off by our bony pelvis it just right. doesn't compute um yeah, it, the, the whole length of pregnancy thing is fascinating to me, um, particularly on a sort of personal level, because uh, I was a, a sort of long gestator and uh, yeah. my my first baby, um, I went past my due date and then I went yeah. past 42 weeks and then I was induced. And then my yes. second and third baby I had at home and I declined induction and I went both with both of them to 42 weeks on the dot amazing and, I mean when you when I say on the dot I mean that's dependent yeah. on exactly when they were conceived but yeah you know as far as my due date was concerned and I just always think about it as part of my personality that I'm just like a kind of you know I like I'm real last minute person you know wait till the <laughs> deadline kind of thing <laughs> I was thinking what it says about you is that you just have a you have a lot to give and you also like to maybe stew about things <laughs> yeah yeah I have to get my head in exactly the right place and uh -huh. I definitely felt like that with giving birth but um but I'm sure that's not very scientific explanation I'm sure but it is it is so interesting isn't it mm -hmm. because I think this is one of the big um pressures that women women face now and one of the reasons why so many women who don't want to medicalize birth end up having a med medicalized yep. birth is the due date thing the due um, date is is yeah it it, it <sighs> I don't even understand why um I I don't know enough about it and and um I mean <sighs> it's just one more way to control I think to control what happens and to control the birth. Um, it's and it just, does, it, it's it to help continue. schedule a hospital, I think. I, yeah. I really I really don't I really don't know what else it could be. There is an implication within it as well as as in as the same as in the obstetric dilemma that mm -hmm. women's bodies aren't getting it quite right somehow as well, isn't it? Like there's oh, a lack oh, of trust. Yeah. There's a lack like, of trust. Like this is Right. And there's a normal and you're, and then anybody who's too soon is not normal. And anybody who's too late is not normal, which is mostly everybody. And then yeah. you're able to paint everybody as abnormal. And then we've got to control it. If you're early, then we've got to, mm, you've got to medicalize that. And then if it's late, mm, we've got to medicalize that. I don't, I don't know. I'm being, I know I'm being um, kind of uh, 
overly suspicious, but uh, well, maybe to to some <laughs> to some I might sound that way, but um, I think I'm being kind. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, I think you're being fair as someone who's like looked at the 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 existing narrative and challenged it, not just you know you know it, you, you've challenged it in an extremely academic and scientific way and you've you've you know you've rigorously um yeah. i think you have the right to um have a view on <laughs> where things are going wrong um at the moment yeah well thanks <laughs> what what's what are you up to now oh my goodness i'm i'm writing a book i'm writing a book and my deadline is january 2024 which is uh, it's it's both not soon enough and 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 too soon. Yeah. <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought you would. <laughs> so I'm I'm living the dream. I really am. I'm living the dream writing my book. Um, but that's okay. that's basically all I can think about. And of course, I have to teach. You know, and I love teaching. But I have a I have a normal job where I teach courses at the University of Rhode Island. And yesterday was the first day of of the semester, so I kicked off my sex and reproduction class. And that's already a riot and another class on human evolution in general. So, yeah. What's the book about? Are you allowed to say? Yeah. So, well, I can, I can just, it's, it's straight up human evolution, but without the patriarchal myths. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, Where can I buy it? <laughs> it's human evolution for everybody, right? Without all that, without all the 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 sex and gender bias that is still out there. I don't think there's ever been anything like this. So I'm just uh, so happy to be doing it. Yeah, I, I can't wait to read it. It sounds amazing. Um, before you go, Thanks. do you have any advice? If a woman is listening to this right now who is pregnant, do you have any advice to her? Oh my goodness. Um, um, read your book <laughs> <laughs> first. Um, uh, uh, don't wait until you're super pregnant to start thinking about everything because if you're like me, that's when I felt too vulnerable and then more fearful. Um, and maybe it's because some things happened to me in, in my third trimester too, that made life more difficult, but I also think that was a big part of it. And so early on, while I was still feeling like a God or a goddess, you know, when I just got that pee stick positive and, um, that's the time when, when you're feeling empowered by pregnancy to, to do the hard things, I would say. And that is to ask your doctor, if you have a doctor, if that's, you've got an OBGYN, that's what we call them here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 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 like about what they know about how you want to give birth and what and get a sense of whether they know what you're talking about uh, because they may not and um, then if they don't find someone else um, don't be afraid to look into home birth um, don't be at all uh, and do it while you're empowered early on or do it before you're pregnant but we were talking to pregnant people now so yeah um, while you're empowered don't wait till you know that second ultrasound even or, or further along um, and then and I think that yeah that's all that's I I, I could talk forever to answer oh. your question um, but I won't <laughs> I won't no, it's great. And I guess um, a good idea would be to ask them if they've heard of the obstetric dilemma and what they think about it. 
I, I think that's a great idea. I think it's yeah. a great idea. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been absolutely amazing speaking to you. Um, you've been an absolute heroine in my eyes ever since I discovered your work and really, really grateful to you for, you know, just being able to think outside the box in that way and, and debunk this theory and, and come from a place of confidence and trust in women's bodies. It's absolutely brilliant. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more about why childbirth is a feminist issue, a new edition of Give Birth Like a Feminist was published in January 2023 and it's available on Kindle, audiobook and paperback from all good bookshops. Please also subscribe to the podcast to show your support and make sure you don't miss an episode. See you next time on Give Birth Like a Feminist.